Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Unorthodoxy podcast. I have a question that I want to explore briefly here, and I hope you appreciate it. The question is, what is it in alternative perspectives on theology that causes offense? You know, this happens, right? So you're going about your daily business, you're having a lovely conversation, and somewhere along the line, you drop into the conversation that you're pretty sure, based on your own fairly extensive research, that the biblical book of Jonah is a work of fiction. And suddenly, the person you're talking to loses their minds. That's why I want to ask this question. What is it in alternative perspectives on theology that gets some people so upset? I know that this is a question that you're not necessarily pondering right now, but it's something that has a pretty huge significance for what I do. I, I'm always working on research and chatting to people about philosophy, and then I'm busy with this podcast. And I, I know that I offer a slightly more unusual perspective on theology. My aim is to offer theology as a way of critiquing ideology and not just as a way of merely confirming or upholding ideology. And this means that I will tend towards what is slightly unorthodox, which is exactly the name of this podcast. I also know that this question of what upsets people in new theologies or alternative theologies will have about as many answers as there are people in the world. So I'm obviously not going to try and cover all those answers. I just want to look at one way of answering the question. And this requires a little bit of psychoanalysis. So there is this trick that some psychoanalysts know that I think is really profoundly helpful. They know how to listen out for repetitions, for things that an individual keeps on saying, and the psychoanalyst will then ask questions about that repetition in the hope that the truth behind it may be illuminated. Because there's always a truth behind what we're saying. It's not just in what we're saying, it's, it's underneath it. So the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan posited this idea of what he called master signifiers. The phrase master signifiers should already give you a hint of what Lacan was getting at. And at first I know it can sound like a bit of a weird or esoteric concept. But it is actually really practical. It's, got, uh, it's a practical insight that almost any of us can see at work in daily life. And just, just to understand a little bit about what's going on. These master signifiers are linguistic signs that act as pillars or support structures of an individual's ego. In other words, the question of what master signifiers are has everything to do with how we use language to support our sense of identity. It's not uh, a way, language never encompasses the full, full picture of who we are, but it supports a sense that we have of identity. Because obviously we all have ideas about who we are and what we're about. You're a teacher or a designer or a professor or a writer or a fan of anime movies or a cyclist or a Christian or an atheist and so on. So... You also, maybe you like pizza, uh, but not with olives, and you enjoy watching horror movies, and you think of yourself as a friend of the environment. So you get the idea. Words aren't just about communicating the world to us, but they're about communicating ourselves to ourselves. We, we use language to explain ourselves to ourselves, which is a pretty amazing thing. So this is actually just the realm of the ego. It's in the ego that we invest our sense of having a stable, concrete, fixed identity. 
even though identity is probably not nearly as stable, concrete, or fixed as we'd like it to be. And we tend to frame our egos by using very specific terms or words that carry an unusual emotional load. These terms don't always make complete sense when interrogated, though, but they they have a kind of significance for the individual that goes beyond literal definitions. These, more or less, are master signifiers. These terms or signs or words can be a little like verbal tics, things they're, they're said, but they don't necessarily reflect the full truth of what's going on. More often than not, they, they keep the facade of the ego intact, even though there's always much more going on in us than, than just our egos. So, for instance, you might hear someone frequently repeat the phrase, everything happens for a reason, when things go wrong, or when you ask someone how they are and they always, without fail, say, I can't complain, or it's all good, or I'm fine. The list goes on. Almost any collection of words can be master signifiers, but it's more likely that words relating to our our identity are the master signifiers. So, for instance, in some circles I've encountered, the word Calvinist is definitely a master signifier, although it is almost permanently astonishing to me how few Calvinists actually know what Calvin wrote. Some people attach an unusual emotional load to the word Calvinist, without that word necessarily being the best representation of the experiential realm of the human subject of that individual. I've been known from time to time, as you probably know by now, I've been known to to poke fun at people who think of themselves as Calvinists, and they have been known to get quite upset with this. Even though, and this is what I find really strange, even though a lot of these people don't even pay any attention to John Calvin at all. John Calvin could be the secret identity of a guy named Bonzo Diddlesticks, and they really wouldn't be any the wiser. With master signifiers, the words themselves become almost meaningless, but people keep saying them, using them to provide a sense of stability to their egos. It's almost like the words have become the lyrics of a song you heard when you were a teenager, and you kept on going back to the song because it was catchy and it had a nice groove, and now you occasionally find yourself singing that song um, to yourself, even though you haven't thought for a while about what the song's lyrics actually mean. The words are just there and their meaning is more in the f- it's kind of a hidden thing it's more about the the fact that the song itself provided you with a nice feeling maybe before i i cause any confusion it might be helpful to to use a, the example that Lionel Bailey uses in he does this in his introductory book on Lacan he refers to a young girl who keeps on using the phrase i'm so lucky but she uses it in a number of very obviously unlucky situations, including in reference to the death of her father. So the phrase, I'm so lucky, functioned a little bit like the phrase, well, things could be worse. It was basically a defense against the, a really awful truth. She she was really not lucky. She had lost her dad. She She'd really suffered, and her life was not in a brilliant state. I'm sure you've heard people, you're close to... They have their own master signifiers. I definitely know I have my own. And if you listen to my podcast long enough, you'll probably start to figure out what they are. But what does this all mean? Well, 
in I say that psychoanalysts like to listen out for these master signifiers, which means that they must be up to something. What they want to do by interrogating the subject's master signifiers, it's really not anything sinister. They're not trying to eradicate or destroy the individual's master signifiers, um, because that could actually be quite catastrophic. Um, we, we all need a basic ego structure in order to function in society. Nevertheless, the aim of a great deal of, of therapy is to point out that there is something beneath or behind the master signifiers. And this, whatever is going on behind, that's almost certainly being masked, hidden by the master signifiers. Like the girl who thought herself lucky, or called herself lucky, even when she wasn't lucky. And now all of this brings me to the world of theology. What if sometimes our theologies can act as a system of master signifiers, like the way that some people refer to themselves as Calvinists, even if they really have no idea what that means to them. Maybe it's just part of a social construct. But I'm, I'm not talking just about general labels like Calvinists. I'm talking about the details of theologies. For some of you, this is maybe going to be quite easy to accept, and for others, it may be alarming. Sometimes, theology might just be giving us language that masks some kind of shady underside. Maybe our theologies can hide something about what we're actually experiencing or seeing in the world. Maybe we can use theological language to avoid the truth. Maybe the truth is that life is way more complex than our language can account for. It's way more ambiguous, and sometimes it's just plain scary. I'm not saying that all theology does this, obviously, but some of it definitely does, especially that kind of day-to-day -day theology. It's the theology you walk around with in your head or, or talk about with friends over coffee. You get people, for example, who will repeat in different contexts a phrase like, God is in control. And it sounds lovely at first, but when you look closely at it, you realize it's utter theological nonsense. Because when you start applying it to everyday life, you end up with a total mess. If I drop my toast on the floor accidentally, was God in control then? Or when I stub my toe or crash my car or burn dinner or forget where I put my keys, suddenly the phrase God is in control looks like it needs a lot of caveats, which of course it does. The phrase everything happens for a reason is another one of these. It, it functions in the same way. And it sounds lovely at first because it is a proclamation about reality and the world. And it seems to render reality very safe. But nothing is safe. Not everything happens for a reason. Some things like evil and pain have causes, but they are not reasonable. Even mysticism is something that seems to transcend reason. So if we're not careful, reason can act as a master signifier that guards us against what we cannot explain. And this includes things like God. Not that God is a thing, but you know, God or a religious experience. I'm not saying that the religiously inclined are the only ones whose theologies might act as master signifiers. In fact, the new atheists are profoundly good at using master signifiers as well. The word science for them is, is a really powerful master signifier, even though science is unlikely to give life meaning. Just because you can explain things in evolutionary terms doesn't mean that life is now explained. 
there's also that that famous new atheist billboard which I I saw an image of a while back. It said, "There's probably no God, so you might as well sit back and enjoy life." It said something like that. That as if enjoyment is the only part of this really rich experience that we call being human. The new atheists will also jump on any bandwagon that proclaims the immorality of God, for instance, without ever bothering to question whether it's fair to dispose of God by means of an absolute moral law. That looks like using a God to dispose another God. I don't know. It just seems ridiculous, but the language itself can get used to prevent people from confronting the wider complexities of their own reality. And of course, we all know religious fundamentalists are really good at using master signifiers. Every doctrine becomes so ferociously and literalistically defended that alternatives, especially alternatives that raise the issue of of doubts that we have, get smothered before they've even had room to breathe. So yes, sometimes I think we can use theology to hide the truth. It's a weird idea, I guess, because... I mean, obviously, theology is supposed to be about a relentless pursuit of truth. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves consciously pursuing the truth while unconsciously protecting ourselves from it. Maybe it'll help for me to talk a little bit about some of my experiences just as a speaker at various forums. I've spoken all over the place, churches, schools, philosophy and theology forums, conferences, companies, I've I've given lectures in, you know, England and America and South Africa, and it's my job. You know, I teach at a university, which means I'm in a brilliant position to be able to share ideas and insights that I've had and discovered. One of the more fascinating things I've discovered after speaking to a group of people is how a lot of my talks get met with quite mixed reviews, which is fair. I get applause, I get resistance, I get outright anger from a few people and so on which is totally normal. And I'm not a kid, so this is not not a problem. People are different, and so they're going to like different things. And disagreement is all part of the game. So I understand that it's perfectly natural that some people will find what I say cool, interesting, helpful, or good, while others will be less than excited, or they'll be just outright offended. This in itself is not a big deal. But what seems to me to be a big deal is that often people have been really, really angry with me, even when I haven't said anything explicitly offensive. Some people get kind of fuming, raging mad, and yet, what I really find fascinating, and yet they don't know why. Like I say, that the biblical book of Jonah is a work of fiction, and what follows isn't necessarily going to be all that pretty. But why is that a problem? I mean, Jesus used fiction to teach. Half of his teachings are in parables. And only very, very few of those parables directly reference history. And even the references to history have been fictionalized. So, I mean, that's just one example. But fiction is cool. It's totally fine. It's a great way to get truth across, as people like Kierkegaard and C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton understood. But... Well, as I see it, the reaction to something like the news that the book of Jonah is fiction can be a little bit over the top. I mean, you knew this all along, didn't you? A guy getting swallowed by a fish and living to tell the tale seriously? And the fact that the book of Jonah says that the animals repented? 
What? I mean, that's really funny, but it's unlikely that it really happened. So what's the problem? Maybe Jonah is a joke book. Uh, in fact, I know that's maybe taking it a bit far, but some scholars are saying it's it's profoundly funny. And when you look at it in that light, you realize there's quite a lot there that is joke-like. But that's that's probably a point for another discussion. Any of you who've taught something that isn't exactly in keeping with familiar territory will know exactly what I mean. I think of this one experience that I had when I was a guest lecturer at a Bible college uh, nearby, and this one student there told me how angry she was at what I was saying. I won't say what I was saying. Uh, That's a topic for another discussion. But I said, that's really no problem. Uh, Let's talk about it and figure out what it was in what I was saying that was making her feel so, so mad. Because I thought, you know, let's, I'd like to understand her position. I'm really open to learning and disagreement can be really helpful for this. But as we continued the discussion, she, she said that she couldn't really put her finger on it. She was mad, but when pressed, she couldn't tell me exactly what it was that I'd said that had caused her to react in this way. In fact, as we spoke, she kind of explained that she saw sense in what I said, that maybe I was right and she needed to go back and do her research. What does this mean? Uh, Here's my theory, Uh, and it's not complete, and I think it's just worth pondering. I think what's happening is that I seem to have this tendency to want to resist the master signifiers that people use in casual theological discussions or in lecture discussions. I want to find other words for discussing things, other ways to bring things to light, because I feel that this can get us out of the narcissistic loop of only hearing what we expect to hear. It's only through fresh expressions that we find new life in the world. There's nothing worse for me than walking out of a talk or a sermon or a lecture and feeling like I was just given what I already knew in words I already knew. Actually, there are worse things than this, but it's not the point. The point is, I want to be able to think. I want to be able to apprehend familiar things from a new perspective, even if it's not one that I end up agreeing with. I, I want to be able to grow. Who doesn't want to grow? Actually, I'm pretty sure there are people that don't want to grow, but isn't growing a good thing, especially when you're talking about intellectual and spiritual growth? And I have a strong suspicion that growth is made almost impossible when the world of the individual is mapped out in master signifiers. I say all of this because I know that there are people out there like me who have this tendency to speak against the flow, who have this insatiable need to challenge the status quo. I know that there are those who want to push the boundaries of what we do with thought, and especially with the way that we think through theology and Christianity and history and philosophy and and how these things relate to the world that we live in. I think especially of a friend of mine who wrote this amazing, amazing book, and I loved it, and I thought it was just utterly illuminating But it's a book that challenges a few concepts that are taken as given in certain academic circles. And so it's been met with mixed reviews and some hostility. My guess is that at least some of this resistance or hostility against against my friend's book has something to do with the fact that he is talking about the underside of more than just a few 
master signifiers. And maybe he's even pointing out to a few people that their master signifiers are empty, meaningless, or just plain wrong. It's hard to be the one to do this. I know this because there will be flack that you will get, but it needs to be done. In psychoanalytic terms, people get stuck so easily in living in a world entirely framed by their master signifiers, and they need to get unstuck. They need reality to break through the fictions that they've built to keep that reality out. Sometimes this may not be what you're trying to do. It just happens. But you just say something that strikes a nerve and it dislodges people from their position of false security. There is a question that I've found quite helpful just in reflecting on 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 what is happening in that moment uh, when I say what I do that causes alarm or I, I ask, is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Th- that question is actually from the Buddha. It's, it's such a good question. Whenever you speak or have spoken and you need to test what you've said, that's the question. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Sometimes you will find that there was a kinder way to say what you did, and that's part of it. It's it's you can grow through conflict. Sometimes you will look back and you'll reflect and go, well, maybe what I said wasn't exactly true, but maybe it was necessary for you to say it in order to discover the truth. It's a weird thing, but it's all also something that psychoanalysts and other psychotherapists and even some astute parents know. Sometimes the true, necessary, kind thing is not going to be experienced by the other party as pleasant. Sometimes even kindness can wound. But here's the thing. It can also save and heal and bring life to others. It can invigorate a discussion. It can start friendships. You never know. And that's something I want to say is like, we're going to get pushback. That's just part of life. And when we're challenging the master signifiers of others, whether consciously or unconsciously, there's definitely going to be pushback. My encouragement to you is to keep going. Keep on speaking the true, necessary, and kind thing. In the end, I know this, you're going to find an enormous reward. You you will have grown in the process. And so maybe... This is something that you can do as you go on your journey. You can ask yourself, as I try to ask myself, if there are master signifiers that you are clinging to that are keeping reality out. And maybe you can be a friendly force in the world that challenges the master signifiers of others. And that is really all I have to say for now. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic week. Look after yourselves, everyone. Bye.